I'm Bruce McGee. And I'm Steve Payne. And this is the Louisiana Anthology Podcast, episode 497 for November 26, 2022. Welcome back. Uh, today we have a, uh, uh, I like this episode, we're talking to Ashley Elephant and Beth Yarborough, and uh, they have written a biography of Jean Lafitte, and it's, you know, they've gone through all the research and uh, tried to solve the mystery of where and when did he die, like was he killed while he was a pirate, and apparently the guy uh, changed his name and moved to the, I guess, southeast, like, was it one of the Carolinas? Yeah, North, I think North Carolina, and, and lives out his remaining days eventually in Carolina, yeah, it's amazing And they also eventually find his sword up there, so it's a real detective story, and uh I hope that you will uh, be listening to uh, hear about this. Um, but first, this week in Louisiana history. So this week in Louisiana history on November 27, 1813, here's our friend John Lafitte <laughs> offers a $1,500 reward for the capture of Governor uh, William C.C. C. Claiborne. Because Claiborne had offered a, a $1,500 for the capture of Lafitte. Yeah, it's a, a bounty and counter-bounty. <laughs> Kind of respect to Elon, uh, you know, the, uh, of, of these uh, guys. Um, that it didn't seem to scare him. It just he made it into like a joke, I guess. Uh, yeah, he was probably laughing within his lair down in Barataria Bay or wherever he was hanging out. <laughs> now, for this week in New Orleans history, to raise money to republish a new updated edition of My Awakening, David Duke instigated a. 21-day fundraising drive on November 26, 2007, where he had to raise 25344 by December 17th as a deadline for the printers. Uh, I can guarantee you folks that none of my money went to this particular... <laughs> <laughs> well, was, this, was this the thing that ended up getting him in hot water with the feds for some kind of... Fraud? I wonder. And he, he went away to jail after the fact and went to federal prison. Yep. He was stealing money from his supporters, which, you know, um, given that they were all racist. Yeah, well, and it's, it's what I keep saying from, from Timothy Snyder and, and that, his, was a, that historian Heather Cox Richardson. But anyhow, there's a political scientist and a historian both coming from similar, you know, perspectives, warning us that fascists and Nazis are always corrupt. They're corrupt people. That's part of the deal. Yeah, absolutely. So this week in Louisiana, we will highlight the Victorian Christmas at the Joseph Jefferson Home and Rip Van Winkle Gardens at New Iberia. This is at 5505 Rip Van Winkle Road, New Iberia. This is November the 28th through December 31st, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Uh, the program offers tours of the Jeff- Joseph Jefferson Home and Rip Van Winkle Gardens decorated for the holiday season. And I think he is a famous actor who lived in New Iberia for a time. Yeah, we... I kept looking around online for a memoir of his. I'm not sure if I ever found anything or not. This is really recently because we're always, you and I are always finding new text to add. But he was somebody, if I'm not mistaken, I looked for him specifically, and he was one of the most well-known and, and really beloved uh, actors of the, I guess, like the, maybe the late 19th century. But he lived in New <laughs> Iberia for, several, I think, close to a decade. It was quite a while. Now, Rip Van Winkle was colonial to uh, early republic, so he had to have a much longer nap to wake up in Victorian times, but uh, <laughs> to the task. 
Now for this week's postcard from Louisiana, I listen to the Nova Chorus Girls and Dr. Queen G. Thank you. 
I'm Bruce McGee. And I'm Steve Payne. And we're here today with Ashley Elephant and Beth Yarborough. Welcome, Ashley. Thank you. We're so glad to be here. Thank you. So happy to have you guys. And uh, y'all have written a book that's a subject near and dear to my heart. I'm sure a lot of Louisiana. uh, And that's uh, kind of a biography of Jean Lafitte, is that right? It is. It's a biography, but also 
a heavily researched explanation for what happened to him after he sort of disappeared into the fog of history into the 1820s. Cool. And I guess uh, right up top, I have to ask, did y'all find the lost treasure? (laughs) (laughs) No treasure. And uh, we believe that, uh, you know, after... Everything that happened in Louisiana uh, and Lafitte was essentially kindly asked to leave. And uh, after everything that happened in Galveston, we're not sure how much treasure was actually uh, left. Uh, as well, we know from history um, that not very many pirates actually buried their treasure and left it behind. A um, couple of reasons for that. Um, it took usually multiple men to dig a hole and to transport and then deposit um, something so valuable. So there were multiple people who knew about it and it's clear about. Uh, But as well, um, it's very unlikely that someone uh, would risk their lives to obtain a treasure and then abandon it and never go back. So um, there are very few instances of any buried treasure being discovered anywhere on land. Uh, Now, that's not to say they're not finding treasure under the sea from sunken ships. Um, but we just don't have very many examples of treasure being dug out of the ground. Which makes sense. I mean, <clears throat> it makes perfect sense because, like you said, it takes lots of people to dig those holes, and that means lots of witnesses. Yep. Exactly. Yeah, that's more the stuff of uh, fiction, it seems like. And good to uh, debunk one of the most persistent uh, myths around John Lafitte. Uh, well, why don't we start at the beginning? Um, oh, and I wanted to ask you before we get into that about some of your sources. Like, first off, do your research? Well, our research actually took us about two years, and it covered two states and numerous archival libraries, repositories, um, courthouses, dusty courthouse basements, historical associations. You name it, all the way from Austin, Texas, as far north as Princeton, New Jersey. So, um, you know, there was more than one source, obviously. And um, some of our best finds actually turned up in some of the least likely places. So um, you just never know. Determination is really the key. And we had read literally everything that had ever been written about Lafitte. Um, uh, to begin the research, and uh, as Beth alluded to, it uh, it really turned out that about, I'd say, 75% of the best information we found turned out to be um, either uh, undigitized, like completely offline, uh, and some of it was even uncatalogued. There were places that had file folders that had been stuffed in a, you know, in a, a drawer or a cabinet somewhere that even the people at the repository um, didn't know very much about. So um, it was both traditional sources, but then a whole lot of sleuthing um, that uh, took us, uh, as Beth said, everywhere. Wow. Now, we, uh, Stephen and I are co-editors of Louisiana Histology, which collects about Louisiana. We have several sources on the feet, but uh, I'm not sure how much weight to give most of them. Uh, we do have some primary documents in um, Latour's appendix of uh, his mm-hmm. account of the Battle of New Orleans. Yes. And uh, 
you know, the British and the Americans were both asking him to work with them. Uh, and he kind of, uh, from judging just by the way the letters read, um, you know, he was being polite to both sides uh, in search of the best deal. Sure. And it was uh, in digging in Latour's life, um, and more particularly in his biography, that one of our biggest breaks uh, in our case came. Um, so sort of stepping back uh, to the sort of macro of our project, I was going to write a new Lafitte biography. Um, I'm an author who's published um, five books, and um, we were uh, we had gone to New Orleans for me to begin the research. Nothing... I would classify Lafitte studies as fairly well stagnant before our book came out. It had been about 80 or 90 years before or since anyone had, had written anything really innovative or interesting about him. We were in New Orleans for me to begin my research, and Beth reminded me of the local legend in our hometown of Lincolnton, um, that there was this you know strange Frenchman who arrived. His name was Lorenzo Ferrer. He arrived here in 1839, and even in his day, uh, there were people here who thought he might have been uh, Jean Lafitte the pirate. And um, so that's sort of how we got involved in trying to unravel the mystery. And uh, in doing so, we made the decision to not just look locally, as very many researchers here had done, uh, but we decided to take a step back and investigate Lafitte's friends um, to see if there was anything that could be gleaned there. And um, it was a footnote in Latour's really fabulous biography that, that came out. Uh, an author named uh, Garrigo published it in 2017, and it was actually in a footnote of the Garrigo book um, that we got one of our biggest breaks, and I'm going to let Beth tell you a little bit about that discovery. The um, uh, Truly, the collective history on the feet sort of had him disappearing. Same. So... Uh, he got the call when we can tell us a little about the um, biography that came out fairly recently. Is that the one that was translated from French into English? It is, and I'll let Beth tell you a little bit about the discovery we made in that text. There was a footnote in one of the chapters that referred to a piece of correspondence between Latour in Havana and Edward Livingston in Washington. Oh, yeah. And they were speaking about, um, according to Garagoo, about a man named Red House. And Garagoo made the notation in the footnote that he had not been able to discover anyone with that surname and that if there were any alert readers out there who could put those dots together, that would be wonderful. Um, so it piqued our interest because we sort of realized immediately that Red House, of course, in French, is Maison Rouge. And Maison Rouge, of course, was the very famous Lafitte House in Galveston. And so in this particular piece of correspondence, these two men were speaking of, um, technically speaking, of Mr. Maison Rouge and were um, corresponding back and forth about him. And we realized immediately that that was code for their own um, And the problem was that the letter Garagoo was referring to was locked in a French archive, a private collection, that had since been closed 
and was not available to us, but we are two determined women. So we decided that maybe the Edward Livingston collection at Princeton would contain even more correspondence, and sure enough, it did. The notable thing about this correspondence was that it was happening in 1829, which was a full five to six years after the last historian had decided that he knew exactly what had happened to Lafitte. Right. So um, then we had him in 1829, and then not even six months later, the man um, named Lorenzo Ferrer, which was simply an alias for Lafitte, um, shows up in Capaya County, Mississippi. So what we saw was a very large gap of 10 or 15 or 20 years between the last known ping for Lafitte and the first known ping for Lorenzo Ferrer had all of a sudden narrowed down to uh, inside of six months. So that was a huge break. Um, Wow. We actually had to dig through boxes and came up with a second letter written a month after the letter that Garrigo had found. And this second letter uh, was still referring between the two men was still referring to the man named Maybell Rouge. So it looks like maybe he quit his uh, pirating life and uh, went on to do something, you know, not quite as um, flamboyant. He did. And so Lafitte, for your uh, listeners that don't know, Lafitte was really um, the last great pirate, and I don't, I like to use the word great because there's nothing great about stealing from people and, and trading and enslaved people, which he did. Um, but he was operating about a hundred years outside of the golden age of piracy. So when we think about, um, sort of the classic pirates like Blackbeard, for instance, that whole model of going to sea and stealing things um, really died in the very early 1700s. And we've got Lafitte coming into Louisiana in the early uh, 1800s. He was really operating way outside the bounds, using a model <coughs> that most people really felt was dead and not useful anymore. Um, but as successful as Lafitte was uh, in, at his peak in the Bayous of Veritaria, he was one of the ten wealthiest men in America. He had millions of dollars in stock. Um, however, wow. um, the, the port officials and local officials really were finding increasing ways to come after him. The Gulf was becoming much more well-patrolled. Um, boats that were carrying goods were much better equipped to defend themselves, and so um, I think Lafitte, being the astute businessman that he was, recognized the show really is over here and um, that he needed to transition to something else. That's what makes Mississippi so interesting, um, that we, we saw him because, you know, we have the letters from Prince, or the letter from Princeton that says that he was being hidden by Latour uh, as late as 1829, but when we found that first ping in Capaya County, Mississippi, which is very close to Jackson, we were puzzled because we didn't know what in the world he would want to do coming in there. But as students of uh, history will know, um, that was the moment at which all eyes in America were turning towards um, those Gulf states because the cotton boom was getting ready to crank up. And Jean Lafitte was a man who could spot a business opportunity to make dirty, quick money 
um, and get in and get out. And so that is essentially what he did uh, in that roughly seven or eight years that he was in Mississippi. Uh, he was in and out of land offices, we know, based on documents that we uncovered down there. He was living off the radar. Uh, he was not in newspapers. He was not, uh, he didn't even own the property where he lives. Um, he uh, did not uh, join a church. He did not get involved civically. Um, he was flying under the radar uh, and making money because there was an abundant amount of money to be made down there. Um, and so we have him in Mississippi. Um, our book covers, uh, has a couple of chapters about what was, what was happening down there. Um, some super interesting details, including the fact that he got married and it's documented. Um, but uh, that's what the Mississippi years were about. Were about. And then we found documentation that allowed us to <clears throat> prove that he uh, transitioned quickly up to uh, North Carolina, which was also a puzzle. Um, uh, and if you like now, I can have my mom tell you a little bit about how he got from Mississippi to North Carolina. I have, uh, before that, um, I wanted to follow up with a question about exactly a pirate does. I've kind of got the impression that a lot of what they were doing was just breaking in uh, items without the proper tax or from the wrong country, like France owned the colony. They don't want anything coming that's not French. That's the same thing thing with the USA. Here's a way to get around the tax uh, collector. Yeah, so that was part of it. So... When Lafitte began to operate in Bear Terry, the first document that we have that places him in Louisiana is in 1805, uh, and it's a document that puts him at Grand Terre. Um, what was happening at various points in the, the time that Lafitte was operating in Louisiana was that the U.S. government made it um, illegal to import enslaved people. And at another time, the U.S. made it illegal to import anything from another country. Uh, and so the ports were essentially shut down, but the people in those areas had gotten accustomed to, to in, you know, the incoming uh, rush of goods and, and, uh, and such that, that you know, they became accustomed to it. And so Lafitte was genius in his recognition of that gap. And, um, yes, they were stealing – um, they were uh, sending boats out to sea to steal both cargo and, unfortunately, to steal human beings. Um, now, is that 1808 when the, when the federal government outlaws the, the slave trade? Is, is that around 1808 or so? I think it was a little later than that, uh, but don't quote me on that. Um, I don't have the – we did the research, but I don't have the, the date right in front of me. Um, I think you might be right. There. Yeah, yeah, that sounds right to me. The reason I'm um, saying that, that means he's got a very, very narrow path between 1805 and 1808 to do his <laughs> diabolical work or whatever. Yeah, but see, the, the, the U.S. government saying you couldn't import slaves didn't have any bearing on him. He did it anyway. Right, um, right. And so um, he, that's the thing. It was illegal to officially bring them in. Uh, he didn't care <laughs> about no. what the you know what the edict was. And so he had um, at reports suggest in Barataria a hundred ships and a thousand men. And I think by and large he was sending them out to sea to do the dirty work. 
what he and Pierre Lafitte, who may or may not have been his brother, we don't have a document that proves it one way or another, um, what they were really adept at was finding a market for what had been stolen um, and being able to sell everything, and unfortunately, again, slaves, uh, to be able to sell them to the people that wanted them without getting caught. for a, a Like a jewel fence. That's what a fence used to do. Sure. Would take the, would take the jewelry or the stocks and bonds, and then they'd pass them off. They're almost like a middleman. Sure. Exactly. That's precisely what they were. So one footnote, um, I forgot to say who Latour was. Uh, the reason the two men knew each other is they worked together to defend New Orleans uh, at the um, Battle of New Orleans. And Latour wrote the first big treatment of the Battle of New Orleans and included this wonderful appendix with just letter after letter, announcements, proclamations, all this stuff. Um, so, uh, you know, it's like he had this stack of papers, and let's put it in there, too. And it is. He did, yes. Um, Latour and Lafitte, um, that friendship was um, very longstanding. And it did not only involve Latour's time in New Orleans. Um, these two men, I believe it was the winter of 1814 or 15, signed on for an expedition up the Mississippi River um, as they were actually acting as spies for Spain, but they posed under aliases and sailed up the Mississippi as far as the Arkansas River, which um, if you want to look at how was Lafitte able to come back into the country into an area that um, technically he may not have known about, well, he and Arsene Latour actually had a very intimate working knowledge of that river all the way up into Arkansas because they were on this expedition together. So um, they also were in uh, Baltimore and Washington, D.C. for a period of time together. Um, very many different connections other than just their paths that crossed in New Orleans. I have to ask, I have to ask out of curiosity. So, I mean, did did anyone were there any Lafitte spottings anywhere where people would recognize them? And I mean, I, I realize that there's no photographic technology to make a you know snap a picture of them someplace, but and portraiture is not probably all that widespread. But I mean, would, would people have recognized them if they saw them and said, "Oh, that's Jean Lafitte"? Um, are you talking about the Mississippi expedition into Arkansas? Well, that and also going into Washington and Baltimore. I mean, I don't know how well he would have been known outside, say, the South Central U.S. But yeah, I think that was all documented. Um, yeah, he I went to see the president. He did. Yeah. He, he wrote a, a letter to the president. Uh -huh. So, uh -huh. yes, all of that was very public and has been very well documented. But also there is some um, evidence that the two men were recognized, even though they were using aliases on that expedition, up the Mississippi, there is some evidence that they were recognized even then. Wow. Uh, because I, we do know they're aliases. Yeah. So I, yeah. it at some point was discovered. And I will jump in here just very briefly in case we don't get back to this. You mentioned portraiture and, and obviously the absence of photography. Something mm -hmm. very, very interesting that came forth in our research were two different sets of eyewitness accounts. Oh, wow. That uh, lived in North Carolina and also 
lived in New Orleans. The people who knew Jean Lafitte in New Orleans um, in the very early 1800s all described the very same man. Um, very tall, handsome, articulate, very clever conversationalist, great with the women, um, very engaging personality, very larger-than-life, alpha male kind of man. So fast forward into the 1840s and 1850s in North Carolina, 700 miles away, completely different set of eyewitnesses who knew the man, Lorenzo Ferrer, they described the exact same man down to height, personality, uh, characteristics, everything about him. And there is even a page in our book that outlines all the similarities. Um, all the way down to both men, we found documentation that both groups of eyewitnesses described a man who had a propensity for fine um, otter skin and beaver skin hats. <laughs> If you were in a court of law, that would be uh, considered circumstantial evidence. Um, you know, I'm, 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 he's holding up really well for a 300-year-old man. Yeah, exactly. a, a, a real strong exactly. piece of circumstantial And Ferrer, Ferrer was also right on the edge of photography in Lincoln County. He yeah. died here in 1875, um, and there were photographs being taken in town um, around that time. We actually... Um, uh, collaborated with the historian here who literally wrote the book about early Lincoln County photography. Uh, and there is no known photograph of Ferrer, uh, in Lincolnton, uh, in his later years. We think that was probably strategic. I believe that if he was at an event where a camera may have been, uh, <laughs> uh snapping away, that he would have likely shot away from it. Yeah. The mob doesn't like pictures being taken. <laughs> Godfather. Well, there's a there's a famous picture that turned up. I'm not sure exactly when this was, but it turned up. Uh, I, I guess people put this together after the assassination of Lincoln. But there's a picture of the crowd, I guess, milling around. The, I'm not sure. It must be the second inaugural, so it must be 1865. And they did a zoom in of, of the photo. Apparently, there in the picture is, is John Wilkes Booth. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. They were able to, to identify him forensically, using forensic photographic techniques. And they figure what was happening was that he was there in Washington literally casing the place. Yeah. Just like a yeah. modern-day criminal would do, or a murderer would do particularly, to try yeah. to see you know, how vulnerable is my target. And so that's yeah. what apparently what Booth was doing. He was there right out in front of the White House casing it. Well, we are uh, eternally hopeful that one day some photographic evidence of Ferrer uh, in Lincolnton will turn up. So uh, we are actively working on a sequel. Uh, we continue to find new information that uh, all of which supports what we asserted uh, in the first book. So um, if there is a photograph, we will find it. <laughs> what about the handwriting analysis? Has anybody, you know, produced a, a specimen of of Lafitte's handwriting and then compared it or contrasted it alongside uh, Ferrer's handwriting or anything yes. like that? Yes, our book has a chapter that does that. Um, however, handwriting analysis uh, is a science. Uh, it's kind of a shaky one, though, uh, right. in that for every expert that says, yes, these two, things, these two samples match up, <laughs> um, I can find you 10 experts who say that they don't. Um, so what we decided to do, we do have handwriting samples um, 
uh, here in Lincolnton of um, known Lafitte documents, um, and we are for rare documents, I should say. They are the same fella. Um, and uh, we put them side by side in the book so the reader can make the comparison. Um, uh, we didn't uh, lead in uh, with our opinions on that, but we can share our opinions. Um, there are some very striking similarities, including um, the way his capital L's were made. Mm -hmm. um, but there are very many letters that are very, very distinctive between the two samples. And so um, we will let the reader decide for him or herself, but um, uh, it's, uh, it's some pretty convincing photographic comparison. That's really cool. I wanted to go back and just start uh, with Lafitte's early life, like where is he from, where did he grow up, like how did he get attracted to the uh, profession of pirating, that early, the early life thing. So the early life is super-duper fuzzy, and we believe that very likely Lafitte was known to have many aliases throughout his life. Lorenzo Ferrer was just his most successful and longest-running one. Um, we believe that because of the absence of records related to his early life, that he was very likely born with a different name than Jean Lafitte. Um, and uh, the reason we say that, most uh, researchers agree um, he was probably born in France, potentially could have been born just across the border in Spain, uh, but he was definitely a Frenchman. Um, but there is no evidence, um, and that's how we operate. you got to have primary archival documents and artifacts to prove mm -hmm. something. There is no evidence that proves Jean Lafitte was born here. These are his brothers and sisters. Uh, th th these are his parents. Um, there is absolutely no evidence. So... Um, 1780 is the date that most historians say he was likely born. Interesting, Lorenzo, uh, interestingly, Lorenzo Ferrer's tombstone in Lincolnton lists his birth year as 1780 in Lyon, France. Um, but there is no hard and fast evidence. But there are very many um, Lafitte uh, aficionados who will assert that they, you know, that he was born here in this year and, and this is his family. They have absolutely no documentation to back up those claims. Um, the We do know sort of where he comes into focus is in Haiti. Mm -hmm. um, and in, uh, this would be in the very early 1800s. He was a young man. Um, that is a, a time in history where there were very many um, serious slave uprisings in Haiti and very many of the families that owned plantations there uh, as things would become increasingly volatile, they would need rescue. Um, so the sort of the first documentation that we have when the Lafitte's come into focus is in those Haiti years when they were running a, uh, essentially a ferry service yeah. um, to get families out of Haiti. Uh, but pretty much everything before Haiti um, is pure speculation. Yeah. Well, and um, Haiti at some point banished most of the white people on the island, so he couldn't stay there too long. Um, did he go to Louisiana right after that? He did, yeah. yeah. Well, and you could see maybe Haiti being part of what, I mean, this is speculation on my part, but uh, one of the results of the Haitian Revolution was to free all the slaves, but then a lot of them wind up in the United States and Louisiana uh, having been re-enslaved, and so that could have been how he got into it, like, 
uh, giving, you know, free slaves ride and then, you know, telling them when he got to the other port. The possibility is there, but we yeah. don't have uh, we don't have evidence that could could say one way or another. Another, but um, possibility certainly well, makes sense. When do we start seeing sources that uh, talk about him uh, engaging in the piracy, you know, the various forms of that? Right around 1805 forward, um, you know, there were early um, notations and. Um, documentation that indicated they were engaged in a lot of trading. Um, and as far as when it actually became documented that he was a wanted man, um, that came a little bit later. Um, right at first, though, they weren't quite as notorious um, and weren't known quite so much as outlaws as they were later on up toward the Battle of New Orleans. By the time that came along, um, there was a hard sell to get Andrew Jackson to agree to even give him an audience. And uh, Latour obviously was one of those influential in making that happen. But um, by that time, all bets were off. You know, they were pretty well casting concrete as pirates and crooks and um, people that you did not want to associate with. Well, and um, one thing Jackson would have had to consider is do you want him on our side pointing his cannons at the British, or do you want him on the British side pointing his cannons at us? So, um, exactly. And, and Jackson was a savvy man, uh, I think, who he needed a little bit of persuading. Uh, his first uh, reaction was uh, has been uh, documented by many historians as being he didn't want anything to do with those hellish banditti. Um, and so um, the... Uh, he did need a little bit of convincing, but he was a smart enough man to know that he needed that help. He was without manpower. Um, the British right. outnumbered uh, the Americans. Uh, he was without uh, weaponry, and most importantly, he was without flints. Um, the Lafitte uh, were essentially early arms dealers, and they had warehouses full of, uh, of weaponry and flints at their disposal down in Barataria. Uh, and they, Jackson was also in need of men who understood the geography um, of those swamps and could move easily through. Uh, and so um, Lafitte had all of those things. Uh, and to your point, I think, uh, absolutely, do you want him <laughs> pointing cannons for you or at you? And um, while historians are, are, are a bit conflicted about um, you know, whether the Lafitte were actually there at the battle. Um, uh, what is known is that their flints uh, were a turning point for the Americans mm -hmm. and the performance of the gunners that um, uh, right. Lafitte donated to the battle, um, they were uh, expert, absolutely expert, and um, their expertise uh, was pivotal. There is a document, there's a documentary I think produced by Louisiana Public Broadcasting, but anyway, it's a, it's a documentary, and it points out that when Jackson came to the then, you know, it was really New Orleans was kind of a glorified small town at that time. It was not a large city by any means, and supposedly they were so desperate, not only, like you said, for manpower, but for supplies, particularly the flints and the gunpowder and also weaponry, that they went from house to house begging for, uh, you know, the, the, the people and the supplies. And they actually rounded up a lot of people that didn't even have guns, and they were going to be 
kind of a last-ditch stand against the British, were the British able to, to take the American lines. Because yeah. those people would have been armed with only pitchforks and hatchets and axes and that kind of thing. I mean, they were very, very strapped. Yeah. And on top of that, th- there's a weird thing that comes up in this documentary, too, that the night before the storm, oh, I'm sorry, the night before the battle, uh, there was a freakish sleet, sleet storm of all things in New Orleans. And that Man. was what stopped the British in their tracks down south of the city. Uh, they were actually trapped in that muck with all that sleet and mud and everything else. And so they got stranded there in the in the marsh and couldn't really move very far north in, in any kind of speedy in any speedy fashion, in other words, thanks in part to a freak, you know, a freak winter storm in New Orleans. Yeah. It's such interesting history to me and uh, one of the things from this project that is just a huge takeaway, I'm an, I'm an educator. I taught uh, college English for 20 years. And um, one of the things that I am sad <clears throat> to see is so many students who think history is boring uh, and that, that history is dead. Uh, and uh, the thing that really fueled us as we went on this, uh, what turned out to be a great adventure, was our own curiosity. And um, I am uh, – I want all students and really just all people um, to, to recognize that even when we're talking about figures battles that happened in 1815, right, uh, mm-hmm. and, and figures as old as Jean Lafitte and older, um, there's still new things to be discovered, uh, and we have so much to learn, uh, even even still from, from what happened. And so um, I love that new documentaries are still coming out, and there are people like us, you know, not just us, that are, are producing – um, really uh, innovative research that shines new light and um, hopefully will inspire other people uh, to join the fun and uh, investigate history, um, not just from your computer, uh, because, you know, right. so many people think, oh, it's all on Google these days, everything's digitized, and uh, it's really not. Um, no. There's still so much sleuthing, uh, and we, we got to take part in it, and it was the yeah. most fun we have ever had. Yeah. Oh, it's Bruce, tell, tell them about your about your relative back in Mississippi, that, that road of, of Jackson's Road that runs through the property or runs nearby the property. Can you tell anything, Stephen? Yeah, yeah that, that, that road that runs by your aunt's property or something. Oh, Highway 49. Yeah, it goes from Hattiesburg to Jackson. It was Jackson's Road that was cut through there. And they, oh, that you know, one, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there was uh, a... The U.S. put in kind of a primitive highway uh, by uh, Jackson to be able to bring in supplies uh, and tie, you know, Louisiana by land to the rest of the country. So there's still little spots of that. Well, um, so you were saying that, uh, and by the way, I just can't let it pass about Andrew Jackson knowing if he wanted to deal with the pirates. There is no bigger criminal in United States history than <laughs> Jackson. So. You know, if he could deal with him, he could kill him with the feet. Um, so, did their um, prominence and, you know, cachet did helping with the Battle of New Orleans kind of help them out with the locals so that they gained a little respectability? Oh, for about 15 minutes. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> They, uh, yes, in the short term, they were celebrated locally, and they were formally thanked for their help 
But all that began to quickly fade, and concurrent with that, and in the meantime, even though they sort of uh, got bits and pieces of their reputations restored and elevated, they never really got their money back. There was, was an, well, it wasn't theirs to begin with because it was stolen property, but a lot of it had been seized, and not all of it had been turned over to governments. It had been seized by um, quote-unquote officials who then sort of forgot to pass it on along, but... They, uh, that was one of the reasons that Lafitte wrote the letter to the president that he did. He uh, wanted it known, number one, that he was not a pirate. He was a privateer. And number two, he wanted what was left of his uh, fortune, he wanted it restored to him. Um, he never got it back. And in New Orleans, they were finally sort of unceremoniously escorted out of town and leave, and that is when they segued over to Galveston, Texas, and okay. tried to resurrect the whole enterprise again from a short distance away. And supposedly, at one point, the governor put a wanted poster of Lafitte up for $500, so Lafitte spread a bunch of posters of uh, the governor being wanted for $500 is there any truth to that? Yarn? There is. There is, and I believe one of the posters still exists um, somewhere. Hmm. Uh, and uh, what what was really, it wasn't so much the poster that uh, that got, you know, got under the skin of the officials. It was the fact that Lafitte's men could come into the city unmolested and put them all up, even though they were wanted. Uh, and so, uh, yes, he was... Um, I think that story and that activity just sort of points to the personality of the man, um, and it connects, too, to the personality of Lorenzo Ferrer um, once he got to Lincolnton. And our book goes into great detail in multiple chapters because there is an abundance of information, uh, a primary um, documents that exist um, here in Lincolnton, uh, and we also found a sword, which we'll uh, be glad to talk to you about before the uh, the podcast concludes. Um, but but Lincolnton is really where a lot of things got unlocked, and uh, we found some very definitive proof that um, the man who came to Lincolnton in 1839, named Lorenzo Ferrer, really was the pirate Sean Lafitte. You mentioned earlier a, that he married a, a local woman. Is that correct? He, um, yeah, somebody from North Carolina. Or? Um, well, no, this was while he was in Mississippi. He was okay, in okay. his uh, mid fifties and married a seventeen-year-old girl. Oh wow! Uh, she was the daughter of uh, a prominent businessman there in the Capaya Hines County area, and oddly enough, the marriage did not last. Um, possibly did not last for even several weeks or months because less than two years later, we found documentary evidence that she was remarried to a man um, that she ended up bearing 11 children with. Mm. Um, the problem being that her marriage to Lorenzo Ferrer was uh, never annulled and there was never a divorce and neither of them died. So our guess, and it is purely a guess, but it's an educated one and it makes perfect sense, is that sometime shortly after he married her, either she or her family 
discovered that she had actually married a pirate. (laughs) (laughs) um, So this was possibly a midnight move, or it could be that Lafitte himself realized that he was getting ready to be um, outed or turned over or (laughs) hung in the public square or whatever. So... For whatever reason, he made a very quick exit from Copaya and Hines County and moved two kilometers <laughs> north. Instead of a shotgun uh, wedding, it was a shotgun divorce. A shotgun divorce. Shotgun divorce. Exactly. So what he did was take a mistress with him two counties north and ended up in Canton, Mississippi. And the mistress, whose name was Louisa, is actually the documentary connection that allowed us to prove that the Lorenzo Ferrer who surfaced in Mississippi was exactly the same Lorenzo Ferrer who arrived in Lincoln County, North Carolina in 1839. Um, But while we're in Madison County in Canton, let's go ahead and explain how we drew that connection once we had him in Mississippi, we did not know. You know, if you're out in the middle of nowhere in Mississippi in the 1830s, how do you end up in the middle of nowhere in North Carolina? Do you throw a dart at a map? What do you do? He actually befriended a group of brothers in Canton, Mississippi in the mid-1800s. Their names were Henderson, and there were three of them who had come there for the very same reason as everyone else, the Mississippi cotton boom. One of those Henderson brothers ended up going on to become the first governor of Texas. His name was James Pinckney Henderson. But he and his other two brothers, for a short while, were all three together in Canton. And that was at the same time that Lorenzo Ferrer was there, and they were all doing business out of the same land office, the Mount Salus land office. Now, here is the connecting dot. Those three men were not from Canton, Mississippi. They were from Lincoln County, North Carolina. And there were seven more Henderson siblings still here in Lincoln County. And so when the cotton boom went belly up, um, Jean Lafitte slash Lorenzo Ferrer, who had a strong talent for seeing trouble coming before it actually got to him, picked up his mistress, whose name was Louisa, and came on north to North Carolina and arrived here in 1839. The remaining Henderson siblings immediately befriended him here, and there is documentary evidence that they were with him until his deathbed um, 35 years later. Wow. They were a very prominent, very wealthy group of uh, merchants and uh, businessmen, and that was another hallmark of Jean Lafitte's character, he always surrounded himself with a posse of very powerful, influential, wealthy people who could get him out of trouble. And it was those Hendersons as well, um, one of the uh, other really pivotal discoveries that we made (coughs) was that Lorenzo Ferrer was a founding member of our local Freemason Lodge. And uh, it's Lincoln Lodge 137. And uh, we got the wild idea once we made that connection. Uh, we actually found his petition to join the lodge, uh, which was vouched for by a Henderson brother, uh, not surprisingly. Um, but once we made that connection that he was a Freemason, we knew we had to get in there 
to see all of their uh, documentation related to him. Uh, we also knew that the, the Freemasons are a secretive bunch of guys. And uh, uh, so we almost quite literally knocked on their door and said, hey, we're Ashley and Beth, and we'd like to read your old books. And right. they, were, they were a bit taken aback because nobody had actually ever asked. Um, but they had to take it before the brothers, and it required a unanimous vote. If even one brother had dissented, we would not have been, allow- been allowed in to, to view their uh, ledgers. But uh, to our great luck, uh, they allowed it, and we were able to see what Lorenzo Ferrer was doing once he entered the lodge uh, all the way uh, to when he exited the lodge in scandal. Uh, and the uh, the book um, goes into great detail about what the, those sort of local scandals were. Uh, but it was in the Freemason Lodge in Lincolnton after our research concluded that we really made the most astonishing discovery of our whole journey. Um, our uh, publisher, the University of Louisiana at Lafayette Press, um, had the manuscript. Uh, we had enough evidence to prove the case that Ferrer was Lafitte and um, the Freemasons called us one day and said, we found something and we need you to get up here. Uh, it turned out that their um, Tyler's sword, which they used for their ceremonies uh, and have used for their ceremonies for an awful long time, it had been hanging on two rusty nails, and they decided to bring it down and look closely um, because uh, our research there had sort of piqued their interest about what other evidence of Ferrer might be in the lodge, and uh, very long story short, we examined um, the scabbard very closely uh, and were able to discover a hand-etched signature (laughs) in the scabbard that nobody in the lodge had ever known was there, Um, and that hand-etched signature said J-N-F-A-S-F-I-T-E. Yeah. And uh, there's there's absolutely no reason that that sword with that signature should be in that lodge, uh, other That's than pretty amazing. That, yes, other than the fact that Jean Lafitte was really uh, hiding out there under the name Lorenzo Ferrer. So we took the sword uh, because we knew there would be naysayers. There always are. Um, we knew we couldn't come out with evidence like that without being accused of either planting the sword or. Um, putting the, the signature there ourselves. Right, um, fabricate, fabricating it yes. somehow. We consulted, before publication, we consulted with very high-level experts at the Museum <laughs> of Art, uh, the Smithsonian, uh, and Colonial Williamsburg, and they led us to an expert in uh, antique armor and metals, and uh, he was able to prove with a microscope um, that the letters that we saw on that scabbard, scabbard which were hand-etched, not professionally engraved, were indeed as old as the sword itself, um, and that the letters that we saw were truly there. It wasn't wishful thinking. Um, and uh, the, the way he was able to prove that is there is a layer, a very thick layer of oil or varnish that was put over the signature, and he was able to determine that that oil or varnish is as old as the sword itself. Um, it's a Nathan Starr cavalry saber um, from uh, 1812 to 1813. Wow. Produced, produced for the War of 1812. I was about, yeah, exactly. It's contemporaneous with that war. So. Yes, it is. And there's no other lodge member in Lincoln Lodge 137 that either had any personal connection to the War of 1812, or even any family connection 
to the War of 1812, but for early founding member Lorenzo Ferrer. And we know that um, Jean Lafitte, when he was signing his name, never wrote the first name J-E-A-N. He always signed his name J-N Lafitte, and he spelled it with two F's. Right, right. You know that makes me think that when you were when you were saying that 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 the, the French uh, and my French is so rusty from college, but it makes me think that the French abbreviation for Jean is kind of like the English abbreviation for Jean. Their cognate names it's J N. Yeah. yeah. It's J- and if it is if that if that is the case, that also could at least tie the, the sword as an artifact back to Jean Lafitte to the to to you know, the object of the quest. Yes. Well, I would, the, sword is, the sword is there. Um, the Freemasons are very kind every now and then to let us put it on public display. Um, but it had to be escorted by a Mason when we went and had it examined by experts. Um, sure. And when it is on display publicly, it has to be guarded by one of the members. So um, they, uh, they are very good stewards of it. It's no longer on two rusty nails. Uh, it is now... <laughs> Um, it is now housed uh, in a way that uh, uh, respects what it is, uh, and what it is is an extraordinarily um, important piece of history. And by yeah. the way, we don't believe that Lafitte um, actually used this sword in combat in any way. There is that possibility, but our best guess is that because he had warehouses full of stolen weapons that one day the man just needed a great big knife and went into his warehouse and took this and scratched his name on the scabbard. Well, yeah, um, at this point, because of the, you know, advance of firearms, swords are starting more ceremonial than actual fighting. Yes. So, and there were very many sort of ceremonial swords that were um, given to uh, people in uh, the battle who had participated as well um, that, that were purely ceremonial. Yeah. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the um, afterlife of Jean Lafitte, the popular culture. Like, when did the good people of New Orleans start to uh, kind of blastize this? guy from their past, if he, you know, wasn't that popular when he was there, um, when did the cult, if you will, start to grow? You know, it's, it's interesting. The first few times I was in New Orleans, I was actually a little bit surprised that Lafitte wasn't more celebrated considering the history. Um, uh, you know, yes, there's some sites that are, you know, named for him, uh, but you don't see, I'm a Hemingway scholar, and so... Every city that Hemingway ever visited, you know, has the bar that he drank in, and there's T-shirts, and there's posters, <laughs> and it's everywhere. Um, aside from the Lafitte Blacksmith Shop and a couple of places that are named for Lafitte, I don't really see New Orleans celebrating him in the way that one might think they would. Uh, but to get back to your original question, I think it was really um, uh, with the launch in the middle part of the last century with movies like The Buccaneer, um, there were quite a few um, sort of historical novels that were really not so much historical-based, uh, but more so um, uh, sort of uh, painting a caricature of who Lafitte was. 
Um, and we wind up uh, with... Kind of a Jack Sparrow kind of figure. That's exactly where I was going. We, we wind up with like a Pirates of the Caribbean um, series that makes piracy look so sexy and so fun um, when the reality is that um, there was a, a, a heavy darkness that followed um, a, a group of people who lived from hurting other people, from killing other people, and from stealing. Um, and, and I think that's the part that gets missed in popular culture. And uh, it's really something that in, in any of the events we do, well, we do a pirate week. We had our first annual this past summer in Lincolnton. Uh, anytime we do events, um, particularly when we're working with audiences of children, uh, we want to do whatever we can to not glamorize piracy um, and to provide an age-appropriate but more accurate representation of um, of what it was really like. And as we have been investigating, uh, continuing to investigate and work on our sequel, um, we have uncovered some uh, additional local information. We knew once we published that more stuff, and in this game, national attention, we knew that more leads would come our way once everybody uh, read the book. Um, but we have begun to, to uncover some new evidence that paints a picture of a man, even in old age, here in Lincolnton, who, who potentially had the capacity for evil that sort of is beyond our imagination. Um, and uh, we, uh, we don't ever want to do anything that, uh, that glamorizes that. Um, or to glamorize a man who was singularly responsible for selling um, thousands of human beings into slavery. Right. That's rather like uh, Jim Bowie. I mean, he lives, and this is forgotten by a lot of people, other historians and a few literary scholars, but Bowie lived a good hunk, maybe even most of his life, not in Texas, but in Louisiana. Hmm. Well, and, Bowie and Lafitte knew each other and did business together also. Yeah, Bo, Bo, well, Bowie was a murderer on top of being a slave trader and a smuggler. He was a murderer. Right. And he murdered the, sher the sheriff of Concordia Paris on a doggone sandbar. Uh, Bruce yeah. and I brought on a guest to talk about this before in a, a very infamous uh, uh, combat or whatever called the sandbar fight. But it was yeah. on the border, the literal border of Louisiana and Mississippi, where in those days there was basically no, there's no federal police force like an FBI. Yeah. And, and the only thing that you would have had may have been a few federal marshals, but that would have been it. But they go out on that sandbar, and he winds up murdering that that uh, that sheriff of Concordia Parish. But it's in the area, I want to say of Masters, maybe, in Vidalia. Anyway, mm -hmm. it's over east, east Louisiana, West Mississippi. Yeah. And so they're on an island or a sandbar out there in the middle of the river. And that's a hop, skip, and a jump from where Lafitte settled his career in Mississippi. Um, uh, I, I've been thinking along this, even the, the connection between um, characters like Jim Bowie and John uh, Lafitte. He was kind of a land pilot. He wrote these big Spanish deeds so that people who were squatting lands could, you know, take that courthouse and own it. Um, but he also was a slave trader, you know. Um, so, yeah, just uh, for folks who aren't that familiar with New York, there's the Pirate ILA right by uh, St. Louis Cathedral. And then on Bourbon Street, you have not one but two Lafitte bars. So, um, you know, there is that, even if they don't have a week-long, like, pirate uh, festival. 
and I wouldn't be surprised if someday they don't have a, you know, do start having a pirate festival. So, did you find, like, at the middle, about halfway down Bourbon Street, there's the Lafitte Bar and stuff. Yeah. No Creole Cottage. Is there a real connection? Like, uh, is that accurate or is that something somebody made up to bring in, uh, you know, tourists? Yes, it is accurate. Um, we actually um, presented at the Lafitte Hotel Bar, which is right um, across the street. Actually, it's, still, it's on the same side of the street on Bourbon um, as the Lafitte Blacksmith Shop. Um, but, yes, the Lafitte Brothers did own that property, um, and they um, uh, had a, a black, black bear um, that was actually a front. In the early days, that location was used, um, uh, at, at the back part of it anyway, as a um, – a place for them to conduct business with locals who wanted to buy their stolen goods um, and uh, to deliver goods that had been purchased because their auctions um, often took place down in the swamps in Barataria. Um, and uh, they, the, the Lafitte's, were very effective in distributing information about upcoming auctions to the locals uh, and even getting the, the, the word on up the Mississippi River because very many planters on the plantation um, would come down for the auctions, both to buy goods and to buy slaves. Uh, and so, um, yes, there is a real connection. Um, and um, the, uh, the blacksmith shop uh, bar, uh, I think, is one of the coolest bars in all of America. Um, uh, don't drink the purple drink. I'll go ahead and tell you that. You'll fall down in a gutter somewhere, even if you only drink one. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of important research to be done at the Lafitte. Yeah, um, important research. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's the a research very, is that purple drink. <laughs> yeah, it's a neat place, and uh, uh, I stop in every time I'm in town, which these days is pretty frequently. We're down there quite a bit to um, uh, to offer presentations. So, yeah, I wanted to ask how the response has been to the book because there hasn't been a major uh, public, you know, book on Lafitte of some kind. We um, can't seem to come off the road. We have been <laughs> on tour. Um, on behalf of this book, we have made four trips across the Gulf and back, um, as well as numerous trips. We've made two or three down into Florida and have conducted dozens of events here in the Carolinas, and the requests keep coming. Yeah. Um, the response has been phenomenal. Yeah. And we're going to be, um, we just booked to be in uh, New Iberia for um, the Books on the Tesh uh, Literary right. Festival. Um, so uh, we're already booking uh, uh, into next year. We're going to be um, at the Louisiana State Archives. A lot of these are return engagements. We go and present, and they want us back. Right. Um, as far as the response, to, we felt like um, uh, we knew there were going to be people who would be unhappy with us for having published this book, some of it being sour grapes because we found the information <laughs> before anybody else did. Um, but as well, we um, – Really, in one chapter, we're able to discredit the the, um, the Jean Lafitte Journal, which is on display in uh, Liberty, Texas, in a museum. Um, and we we fully expected someone would try to publish a refutation 
um, to our work, but to date, nobody has even published an article to try to contest anything that we have written. Um, and so there are a lot of people with opinions, um, but your opinion doesn't really matter until you do the research, get a publisher, and and put it out into the world. That's the way um, academia works. And so, right. and how um, much of this stuff that y'all did research was? How many? Of, how much you know, percentage-wise? How much of your uh, uh, how many of your resources were in English, and how many in French? Oh gosh! Or I, well, probably we needed Spanish and French translators at various points. We did mostly, though. I would say eighty-five percent of what we found was in English. So that's the impact the uh, Louisiana Purchase had on the territory, right? You know, pretty early on, um, the switch from Spanish and French to English and these kind of documents. Like, she on a light just, and you can certainly write in the French language and get understand it, but most of the stuff we've looked at, except Moray. Uh, Etienne Moray, who uh, was uh, New Orleans' first mayor under the American regime, wrote a letter to um, Jefferson in French. So, yeah. I have a real off-the-wall question to ask you uh, before we lose y'all or, you know, you have to go someplace else. But he lived, or this, this uh, Ferrer lived so long, you know, until the post-bellum, until the you know, post-Civil War period. Does he at all participate, like, maybe in smuggling during the Civil War, or, you know, to dodge the Union blockade, or does he engage in any kind of – other activity that, that may be on behalf of the Confederacy at all? Do you, do you find any well, I will tell you this. We um, Here is what we know for sure. We know how much money he died with, or at least how much money he officially gave away in his will. That is not to say that there was not more than that, but the amount that he gave away in 1875 at his death was considerable. Um, It was in excess of $5,000. And here is what is notable about that, Uh, and that is just in monetary, that's just in money. That does not include all of the property. Um, He owned multiple pieces of land and multiple structures as well. But the notable thing about the cash that he had in 1875 is this. When he arrived here in 1839, he had money. And he never worked a single day until he died in 1875. He was 96. He was 96 years old. Historians will tell you that if you were rich before the Civil War and you were still rich after the Civil War, it's very likely your money was held in gold because that's the only currency that held it to value. Um, So we know that by some way, by hook or by crook, this man um, likely kept supporting himself in secret. Um, We don't believe that the money he rolled into town with in 1839 is the quote-unquote fortune that sustained him for the next 35 years. It was a good start. Um, but we are uncovering more and more evidence that he was likely involved in the same types of pursuits, maybe not exactly the same, but in that neighborhood of work um, on up.
the Civil War and possibly following. We also have some evidence um, of what was happening in Lincolnton uh, at the end of the Civil War that did involve the rare. Um, we, uh, we know that the, the men in town got word very late in the Civil War, the sort of in 1865, um, got word that the Union troops were going to be coming through town shortly. Very many of the wealthy men scrambled to move their valuables to a, uh, a secret basement vault in the old courthouse building. Um, Ferrer was among them. And uh, the book goes into great detail about the legend that exists that he needed a team of men and a wagon um, with mules to move uh, his valuables, which were in three large seafaring chests that took multiple men to move. Um, and one of those men who turned out to be his best friend and the executor of his will, a man named Wallace Reinhardt, reported that after they got the news and everyone else left, Reinhardt said that Ferrer opened the lid of one of the chests and it was full of gold and that he scooped out a handful and handed it to Reinhardt and said, thank you very much for your help. Um, a second story, um, which is actually documented uh, in newspaper, um, is that after uh, the war ended, there was still some occupation of Union troops down here that uh, a very old Ferrer heard a commotion. Uh, he lives just off the court square on Lot 18 in Lincolnton, that he heard a commotion of gunfire one day and came out of his house to see Union troops acting up and that he had an interaction with them um, that uh, ended with them stealing uh, some of the clothes right off of his back uh, on his on his own front porch. Uh, oh. so there, there is evidence of uh, what was happening during and post Civil War uh, with Ferrer in Lincolnton. Right. So, in a sense, you guys did find this treasure. It's just long been. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? Finding that sword, even though it, it will never be in our possession, that's the only treasure we need because it was uh, yeah. it was probably uh, you know one of the it's going to go down as one of the highlights of both of our lives. Yeah. Yeah. It's a tangible. Awesome. Is there any are there any artifacts? In New Orleans, they're kind of like that, something that Lafitte once owned or dealt with. No. That's what makes this sword so special. Right. It's the one thing left. Yeah. Well, I see we've been going about an hour. Is there anything we left off that you would like to mention? Um, I would just say to your listeners, uh, if you are... Uh, interested, if you're maybe part of a group, um, uh, we present to a lot of historical associations, uh, DAR chapters, museums, libraries. Uh, if you are uh, part of a group that might be interested in um, uh, having us come and speak, we're through Louisiana all the time. We're really there for the gumbo, but uh, right. we'll come to speak too. Um, and uh, we, um, they can check out our book uh, at JeanLafitteRevealed.com. Uh, it is also on Amazon, and uh, they can uh, reach us if they're interested in, in talking about a speaking engagement at JeanLafitteRevealed um, at gmail.com, uh, and that's J-E-A-N-L-A-F-F-I-T-E, revealed.com. So um, when, when when do you project that your sequel will come out? Any any idea or you know, where, where we have no idea. Um, the research for book number one took two years, and then writing took four months. And 
then publishing took another year or year and a half. So we are in the research phase um, right now for the second book. We have no idea how much longer that's going to take. And after that, really can't say how long the writing will take. I wish I could be more specific, but that's about as close as we can come at the moment. We also discover a lot of information that is very time-consuming to verify. And a lot of it turns out to not be legitimate. And so that's sort of, you know, the back and forth and the investigative part, uh, if you're doing it right, takes an awful Sure, time. sure. Well, when you get it published, we'll be happy to bring you back on. You can, well, thank yeah. you. We'd be happy we, to we'd like to bring people back on for sequels and, you know, new publications of their work. So. We'd be glad to do it. Thank you. And uh, Stephen and I would love it if uh, you ever were able to digitize some of those sources and just put them on a website, you know, so everybody can see the old letters and stuff. Yeah. Well, we, there are tons of pictures in the book, uh, and our bibliography um, lists every place we found everything. So you purchase the book, Good. and you can find, you put your hands on everything we saw. Well, thank you so much. This has been a great interview. I was excited. To, and one thing Stephen and I do when we're lining up is we look through the local uh, Louisiana publishers, um, ULL Press, that I was looking to the other day, and oh my goodness, John Lafitte uncovered, yes. <laughs> well, they're, they're publishing our book hopefully next year. We've got the, yeah. we've got a play that, that we found in a, I found a thing in a database, and it's another case where historians knew about things, some literary scholars did. The general public and most, and really even most professionals didn't know about the play. We think it's the first play written in English to feature Louisiana as a setting. Oh, and to the days of the territory, they say 1804. Well, that's, wow. That's interesting. We look forward to hearing more about it. Stay tuned. Oh, well, also, <laughs> we have probably four or five hours on our uh, podcast. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a big deal because it is, you know, again, that first drama uh, in English, dealing with Louisiana, and it's actually a comedy. Uh, then it's, it's kind, of a, kind of a landmark, and it's set on the last day of what he portrays as the Spanish, but it's really the French uh, transfer to the United States. Huh. It's set in very late 1803. It's only it takes place in a 24-hour period. Very very ah. compressed, you know, compressed action. Wow. Well, I look forward to hearing more about it. Thank you, guys. And, yeah, we really appreciate you. Um, best of best wishes for continuing to sell this book and for uh, writing the next one. It's hard to do two things like that at the same time. So, yes, it is. Uh, <laughs> diligent. So thank you care. for having us. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay. Mm-hmm. We want to thank Ashley and Beth for coming on our podcast. Even more, thank them for the research that they did on this subject, uh, trying to trace down these old, old clues to find out what happened to last week. And um, I guess they came as close to finding the treasure with that uh, sword as anybody has ever done. <laughs> you know, this is kind of a we, – we should post this if we can to some – if there are some social media groups that uh, maybe honor the memory or celebrate, you know, the, the life of Jean Lafitte. And there may be some out there like that, like here in Louisiana and over in Texas. Yeah, but, that's a Facebook group. But there was, you remember these, these um, episodes of Bonanza that you and I followed because they're set in the 19th century right in the run-up to the Civil War and in the period right after the Civil War. That's the, kind of the Spanish. 
brought in people from whatever part of the <laughs> Exactly. Well, there's an episode. There was somebody time. good. Yeah, let's get Lafitte on here. Well, there was a an episode, and I'm, I'm not sure of the year it was aired, but there's an episode where they brought on the old character actor, John Daner, I think, who played the radio version of Paladin, had a little travel, and he played, um, I'm trying to think what else he played. So anyhow, he's a rather well-known and kind of respected radio actor mostly, but he did a lot of TV, and he played Lafitte. And the end oh. of, the, of the narrative, I won't give everything away, but the end of the narrative could fit right with this story that these two the historians uh, uncovered, which is that he's a very ambivalent figure in American history. Very, oh, yeah. you know, he's both hero and villain at the same time, or hero and rogue, if you will. And right. they portrayed him. Yeah, they portrayed him in the Bonanza thing of all of all places. As you found out about the Ada Isaac Menken episode with this one, he's portrayed fairly faithfully to real life as a rogue. You know, he's, yeah, he's not and all good or all bad. You know? What we would call uh, these days an anti-hero, you know. Where yeah, or the Picaro, the Picaro, you know, the Picaro. Certain, certain heroic um, tendencies, but also not really a good guy, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, the whole episode he's played like that, even to the last scene, and, it, and it's kind of funny because the way they leave you, it's what they, what they call a narrative, a Janus resolution, where it leaves you wondering, Right. He is, and that's that's how they ended it. So it was very clever to what the scriptwriters yeah. did in that particular episode, and that's kind of what they uncover in the in the story, you know, because he he does supply guns and ammunition for the you know the the, the American troops at New Orleans, but he's also well, he fought they fought alongside because they had yeah. the most accurate cannoneers, however you say that. Um, it's not just the material, but the people to aim this stuff kill a bunch of folks because they've got good aim, you know. They were able to take out the British defenses uh, pretty easily. Well, for the Louisiana Anthology Podcast, <coughs> I'm Bruce McGee. And I'm Steve Payne. We certainly want to thank Ashley and Beth for joining us this week. Uh, do do go out and, and look for their book. Uh, since Bruce and I recorded the original interview and now we're recording the, mm-hmm. the outro, I found that they hit a lot of interview circuits up in the in the mid-Atlantic states, in that area. I think maybe North Carolina, maybe South Carolina too, but a lot of different people in various forms of media, you know, some local TV affiliates as well as some other uh, radio hosts did interview them. So this is a big deal. Uh, and it is, as Bruce said, it is a kind of a solution to an age-old uh, mystery as to the ultimate fate of John Lafitte. So again, you know, do listen to the interview, but do check out the book. It's a very fascinating study, and I think that all of you that check out the book will enjoy it. So again, thank you, Ashley. Thank you, Beth. We also want to thank all of you for tuning in this week, and we hope that you'll join us for next week's edition of the Louisiana Anthology Podcast. Bye for now.